0: Welcome to Hello Health Today, where health is a leadership strategy. I'm Dr. Carmen Mohan. Joining me today as part of our Women at the Helm series is State Representative Bee Nguyen. Bee made history when she was elected as the first Asian American Democratic woman to the Georgia General Assembly. She represents House District 89. The seat formerly held by our mutual Shiro, Stacey Abrams, at the Georgia State Capitol. B is a leading advocate for voting rights, public education, and criminal justice reform. B knows firsthand the importance of a free and fair democracy, and that's why she's running to be our next Secretary of State. You
1: know, it is our fundamental right to vote, and it should be easy and accessible. And instead of fixing. The prohibitive barriers, our General Assembly decided to put more barriers down. And so that's what mobilizes me, thinking about real-life people who are impacted by the policy decisions that we make.
0: If we want to see more women in politics, we'll have to support them and open our minds.
1: What we need to do is put ourselves forward and let people see, because sometimes people need to see something before they can imagine it.
0: B, welcome to Hello Health today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: I have to start with a sincere thank you, B. Thank you for being my representative in the State House of Georgia for District 89.
1: Thanks for saying that. It has been a wild ride.
0: I have to confess I was used to voting for Stacey Abrams, but when she stepped down to run for governor, what drove you to step up to the plate?
1: You know, I have... Um a political journey that was not planned. When I was growing up, I grew up in a household with two immigrant parents who wanted me to keep my head down, stay out of trouble and make really good grades. They had a very narrow pathway of what they deemed as success. In fact, they wanted me to be a doctor like you. Oh no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My other choices were to be a lawyer or at the very worst, they said a pharmacist or an engineer. But one thing that was really important to me was building a sense of empowerment for people because my parents really believed that education was getting the key to getting out of poverty, and that was true for them. But what they didn't understand is the way in which we could build community power or political power, not for the sake of building power itself, but to advocate for our families, our friends, our community, and ourselves. And so I ended up starting a nonprofit working in public schools in Atlanta and cab where I was in the classroom with students every single week for 10 years. And it was in the classroom that I started to understand the importance of engaging in policy and making sure that I was advocating at our state legislature, not understanding that my student schools were underfunded because our state lawmakers have cut our K through 12 public education budget by millions of dollars over many years. um, That, We have not expanded Medicaid, leaving my students and their parents without health care and dental care, um, that my students couldn't have access to livable wages and their parents could not because we are not increasing our state minimum wage. And it was all of those things that led me to the space where I understood the importance of our state legislature. But I was like many women. I had to be asked five to seven times in order to run for office, maybe even more. And even when I made that decision, it was hard because there were people who said, um, you know, it's not your turn. You're just a social justice advocate. It was never about my ability or my commitment and whether or not I would do a good job. And that is um, my journey to becoming a state house rep.
0: Wow. That's just wow. Your win over four other candidates in that race made you the first Asian-American Democratic woman to hold a state office in Georgia. Well, that's a huge yeah. achievement that I, for one, was elated to cheer. I wonder, what what are the challenges of being the first?
1: Well, you know, it's more of the challenge of being the only, I think, because out of 236 lawmakers being the only Asian American woman, that is a lot of responsibility, a lot of burden. And I don't mean burden in a way that um, I don't appreciate the opportunity to advocate for Asian Americans living in Georgia. But the expectation that was put upon me was, you know, I was the sole voice for um, Asian women and only one out of two Asian American elected officials who had to um, take the responsibility of advocating for all Asian communities, which were a very diverse population. We don't speak the same languages. (laughs) Um, And, you know, a lot of Asian people live throughout the state of Georgia. And so it made it really physically impossible to be everywhere at once as well. And then tackling those issues at the General Assembly, one key issue being immigration, there was an expectation that we would lead on immigration issues, which we did. Um, But I remember this moment at the General Assembly, because that first year, we saw a slew of anti immigrant bills being introduced. And I was very vocal in fighting back against them. And I thought, Am I going to be boxed into a corner and be only known as the lawmaker who cares about immigration, even though I'm working on domestic violence, even though I'm working on voting rights? And then I came to the conclusion that it didn't matter because I had to speak up. And if that was the result that um, I would be boxed into one issue, then I was willing to do it because I felt like it was my duty and responsibility to do so. And it wasn't until last year that we elected another Asian woman, Dr. and Senator Michelle Au, and I could feel some of that shared responsibility being lift off my shoulders.
0: It's so unfair, B, because you were pivotal in getting rape kits tested.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was my first experience at the General Assembly. I was Um, an advocate going down there to make sure that we were putting this issue on the forefront of the table because um, we saw that across the country, there were hundreds of thousands of rape kits that weren't being tested. And there was federal law that was passed to provide that funding so that we would test these rape kits. But in the state of Georgia, we had failed to pass Uh, state level legislation to ensure that there was a process by which we were testing rape kits in a timely manner. And it turned out that we had thousands of rape kits just on shelves of hospitals not being transferred to GBI and not being tested. And I'm thinking about, you know, victims who go in and who are already traumatized having to do this really evasive, long and painful process that takes hours and then we put them on shelves and left them there. And so I'm down at the Capitol with women who have been victimized and we were lobbying our state senators and almost everybody that we talked to was a white man. And I thought it is so unfair that we so oftentimes have to share our most personal stories that are painful and traumatizing to help move forward an issue that should not require so much work to move forward. And we were successful in being able to pass that um, because so many women showed up and said, we need these rape kits tested, and if we test them, we will take serial rapists off the street. And it did turn out to be true.
0: And, uh, And I know that, and I really appreciate it, having had to collect those specimens myself um, having them not tested is just so frustrating and knowing that I'm only part of the solution as a physician in the emergency room for those women being accepting being validated at that time there's nothing I can do about the fact that no one will test those kits um, so I just yeah. really appreciate you taking that that on
1: well um, thank you to you too because I knew that is really critically important to have good doctors and um, people in healthcare as well
0: Am I right in understanding you are a second-generation Im- immigrant to the U.S.? Your your parents immigrated from Vietnam?
1: Yes, yes. They left um, their country in the late 70s, mm-hmm. and they have a really horrific um, story of escape. And my dad was actually held as a prisoner of war in what they call re-education camp for three years, and when he was released, my entire family decided to make this journey to America and they took a little boat out and got stranded in the middle of the sea. And, um, it was a Thai fisherman who found them and re- took them to refugee camp in Thailand before they were resettled in the United States. And, you know, it's one of those things where families don't really talk about it very much. Um, and, We've had to cobble bits and pieces of their stories together through the few times that my parents would be willing to share with us tidbits about their journey, but also through talking to other family members because there are about 30 of them on that same boat. Um, And I actually just saw my second cousin and his parents were on the same boat as my parents And his mother was pregnant at the time and really, I mean, literally ready to give birth at any minute. I mean, she was 10 months pregnant and her daughter was born in refugee camp in Thailand. And then my older sister was conceived in refugee camp in Thailand. And she was a very first born American in our entire family, born on July 4th. Oh, wow. I know. And her name is currently Betty
0: Davis.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: I hate to laugh, but it's like you can laugh or you can cry in those circumstances, isn't it? Yeah. I I wonder about the risks that immigrants are willing to take for the American dream. I I know that your parents worked very hard to raise the five of you.
1: Yeah, they did and um, made a lot of sacrifices on the way. And I think for a lot of kids who have immigrant parents, we... Uh, perpetually live in this state where we feel like we need to pay that back and to live up to what they gave us and to, you know, make them proud. And, you know, at one point in my life, I realized I can never live up to what my parents did. That's impossible, but I can honor what they did by recognizing that they brought us to a country where we have the freedom to choose, and part of that freedom is the freedom to fail. And the freedom to fail allows us to figure out what it is that we want to do in life that makes the most sense for us, that's most meaningful for us. And that was the best way that I can honor my parents' legacy. It's
0: an incredible story, B. I don't mean to further pigeonhole you, but I, I do want to ask you about the rash of violence against Asian American women, in particular here in Atlanta. I've been very upset about the murders in the spas, and I know that they're just one set of horrific events that receive media coverage. So I'm aware of a larger trend, uh, just based on what I do um, as my profession. So I have to ask you, What is this hate against Asian women in particular? Where is it coming from? Are the stereotypes the problem? What makes hate so extreme?
1: You know, I think it's really complex. Um, If we look at the history of Asian people living in this country, the violence is not new. And, you know, it started with Chinese rail workers and we saw, you know, systemic decisions related to immigration around excluding the immigration of Asian people, specifically Asian women, at one point. And the rhetoric around that was based on the sexuality of Asian women, and we have a history of exploiting Asian women as well in this country. Um, but you know, the reality is. When there are any groups that come to our country that are considered other, there is violence that goes hand in hand with that because of fear of the other, because the attempts to preserve what people perceive America should be. And so we saw that with the immigration of Chinese rural workers, with Japanese internment post 9-11. Um, and, and so it's not new, but what specifically unleashed this wave that we've been seeing more recently was the former president's rhetoric around um, the COVID-19 pandemic and assigning blame to one country. And as you know, if you are assigning blame to one country... The average American will assume any Asian person is of the same Chinese descent. They cannot distinguish us from each other. And so we saw over the last year this increase of both physical and verbal violence against Asian people living in this country. And I remember, you know, we were um, at the General Assembly earlier this year and um, every single week, we had a group of young activists who were protesting the Senate Bill 202, um, the bill that makes it harder for Georgians to vote. And I went out into the uh, Liberty Plaza pretty regularly to talk to them. And one woman walked up to me and she said, "Hey, B, I've been seeing all these things about increased violence against Asian people and." I'm wondering, have you seen that in Atlanta? And I said to her, you know, I see that it's happening a lot in places like New York and California, where there are Chinatowns, where there's density, where people are walking around. And I said, here in Atlanta, our population is more dispersed because of a suburban sprawl. And, you know, we don't have a whole lot of places where there are Asian people just walking around living their lives. And so it's not as easy as in a target. And the week after that is when the shooting occurred. Um, And it was, the more I learned about it, the more horrific it became. Um, Just all the details of just how deliberate it was, how violent it was. He shot them at close range. Um, There was a story about um, one in the Gold Spa in Atlanta specifically, one of the coworkers said it happened so fast that the women did not even have the time to scream or yell. He said they literally had no last words. It was just they were just gone and then layered on top of the, you know, the fact that it took so long to identify some of the women, it showed how isolated they were, how invisible they were. Um, And the fact that they were working in highly vulnerable industries during a pandemic also underscored, you know, this, the fact that there are a lot of Asian people who do have low wage jobs, low wage jobs, and those stories are never uplifted or told in any meaningful way.
0: I'm really sorry because I think that while it's really important for us to share this story, I know that it's re-traumatizing because we identify with these women. Um but I just we just have to tell it because I don't think people believe that what we say as public servants really matters and it can ruin lives.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, the our rhetoric matters, um systemic racism, systemic xenophobia. And misogyny are deadly. And one of the, you know, one of the hard things about it was, you know, this um, trying to humanize the perpetrator, which we see a lot in police brutality cases. And we see a lot when victims are black. There's an attempt to humanize the person who committed the crime if they are white. And it was no different in this case where we had law enforcement officers come out and say he had a bad day. And that just made it even more painful for us. And, you know, one thing that I do have to say, I think it's really important and it's part of my responsibility um, as a community leader, though, is, you um, When this happened, my colleagues from the Georgia Black Legislative Caucus, the Georgia NAACP, they reached out to me immediately. They said, we have your back. We know too well your pain. We are here for you. And so I want to emphasize the importance of continuing that solidarity building and calling upon my community to show up for Black Lives Matter Um, not just when it's happening to to Asian people, because the reality is we are fighting against the same system. And if we cannot be there for other people who are suffering under that same system, we are never going to be be able to overcome.
0: Whenever I mention the darkness of human behavior, I like to shift my focus to the bright lights. And you're one. Why vacate your seat in the House to run for secretary of our state?
1: You know, I don't think that I fully, you know, it was not part of my plan. Um, I have to say that the majority of the work that I've done in life has not been part of some plan. And I was always very jealous of people who knew exactly what they wanted to do in their life and how they were going to get there. You and um, me, sister. Or had, <laughs> or had some innate talent, like they, they couldn't not be anything but an artist like my younger sister, who's a graphic designer because she was just so talented. And so, you know, I shared with you earlier, the, the reason I ended up working in public schools. And then the reason I began, I decided to run for office. Those were just extensions of the work that I was doing. And like, and it is very much the same with this run for secretary of state. It's an extension of the work that I've already been doing. And in these moments where Voting rights are, you know, on attack, full mode. Um, I'm thinking about the years that I've spent battling back these laws that have been introduced by Georgia Republicans every single year, not just last year. There was one year an attempt to eliminate Sunday voting, one year an attempt to roll back our city of Atlanta municipal voting hours from 8 p.m. to 7 p.m. And in those years, we were successful in beating back those bills. But it changed last year because we delivered for Joe Biden and, you know, our General Assembly brought in Rudy Giuliani. And I remember watching the hearings on the Senate side, and they allowed him and Trump's legal team to, over a couple of committee meetings, to present lies, misinformation, and conspiracy theories. And I watched my Senator Elena Parent and My colleague, Senator Jen Jordan, pushed back against those lies. And when they did, they were met with death threats. And ahead of our House hearings, I had already seen that go down. So I knew what to expect in advance. And there were folks in my life who care about me who said, you may want to consider not speaking up. We are afraid for you because not only are you a woman, but you are a woman of color. And if you push back, they are going to target you. But I felt that it was my responsibility. I didn't run for office to stay silent. And it was much bigger than me. It was not about me. It was about our voters in the state of Georgia. And it was about our country and the preservation of democracy. So I did my homework. I put my head down. And when I came into that committee meeting, you know, I spent my time uh, tearing apart the false findings that were put forward by one of Trump's expert witnesses. And as a result, it was true. I was met with death threats and suddenly I found myself, you know, trying to make a safety plan. And I thought, this is so incredibly wrong. We are in a very dangerous position because it was not just happening to me. It was happening to other elected officials and to our election workers. Um, And heading into our legislative session, I was hoping that my colleagues on the other side of the aisle would have spent some time reflecting internally after what happened on January 6th and focus on what policies they could put forward to improve the lives of Georgians. We were still in, we still are in a pandemic, but at the time, you know, we didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccinations. So there was no effort at all to expand Medicaid and give half a million Georgians access to healthcare. There was no effort to... Uh, more funding towards our Department of Labor so that my constituents could get in touch with somebody. They have been trying for months to get somebody on the phone. People have lost their homes, their jobs, their cars, and they cannot get in touch with a human being. And instead, we spent the entire session battling a bill that will make it harder for Georgians to vote, a bill that was predicated on lies. And that was really, you know, a point in time when I started to reflect on what I wanted to do next. And I felt it was important to step up in this moment and and run for that seat because we need a good secretary of state in Georgia and in every single state uh, across our country.
0: The way that you say it, it's like, I just feel like this is some novel I'm supposed to be reading, but this is real life. And I, I think real. there's a little bit of disbelief in in many of our people who don't understand state politics don't understand what's actually going on in our, in our capital.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what makes it feel even more critical because. Here I am having conversations with my colleagues across the aisle who truly do not believe the election was stolen, but they have built this radical base of voters who believe the election was stolen. And I remember distinctly last year, ahead of our primary results, ahead of the general results, in our committee meetings, there was already coordinated talking points on the other side of the aisle to start to sow seeds of doubt as it pertains to absentee ballot voting. And we're a state that has not used vote by mail in such large numbers until we were in a pandemic. And we had at one point brought in a nonpartisan elections expert, and she presented us with all of these really good findings on other states who primarily use vote by mail. And she unequivocally said that voter fraud is not really a thing. There are singular incidences in which a voter accidentally does something that is not according to the law. And one example she gave is she said older voters sometimes forget that they cast their ballot by mail and then they show up at the polls. But she said it's a very, very rare that somebody intentionally commits the act of voter fraud. And they have seen this over many years You know, using these states that perform really well using vote by mail. I mean, they have the highest voter turnouts when you make it accessible to everybody. But instead of using that information, you know, to really tackle a vote by mail system in Georgia, our sitting lawmakers on the other side of the aisle kept repeating the same talking points. And at one point, somebody said, Well, the perception that voter fraud is real is actually more important than whether or not it's real. And I'm like, well, the perception, the doubts and the perception are there because you are working in a coordinated fashion across the country in every state in tandem with the former president to sow these seeds of doubt early on in preparation in case you lose the election because they knew that there was a possibility they would lose the election. And the more we find out, the darker it becomes. The fact that the Heritage Foundation was pushing these uh, model bills in multiple states and funneling millions of dollars of dark money into our state to pass it at Bill 202. We have it on tape. They said this bill is intended to make it harder to vote. There's no argument here. And for those of us on the inside, we see it even more acutely. So the fact that, you know, there's this, there are two sides of the story. It's not true. Um, The truth is there is no voter fraud. It is very, very rare. In fact, the Secretary of State in our state at one time said we should even be careful to use that term because as experts have said, they are generally singular cases that are not intentional. It's extremely rare when somebody does it intentionally. And as someone who has knocked on thousands of doors, and done a lot of voter uh, mobilization work, it's often really hard to convince people to use their right to vote.
0: Oh, goodness. So my daughters and I were chatting around the dinner table last night. They're half Indian. So my husband is the son of immigrants from South India. So we were talking about you and what they wanted to know is why is this campaign important? What drives you to be in politics? And as an aside, they also wanted to know what you eat for dinner because they love Vietnamese food.
1: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, I think that I um, have mentioned, you know, that this just this, just being so immersed in voting rights. And when I think about how it impacts people, that's what really mobilizes me. Because I, you know, I love policy, it can be very policy wonky, but when you witness the way that policies impact everyday Georgians, you become committed and invested in a different way. So an example is, in the 2020 election and the 2021 elections, we were doing what we call ballot curing, which basically means if a voter votes by mail and they forget to sign the, the outer envelope or their signature doesn't match and they were flagged for a mismatch, then they had a process to prove that it, you know they could they could sign they could sign the ballot, submit identification, and also fix the signature mismatch. It's called ballot curing. And it was a process that was put into place um, after the 2018 election because of the high number of rejected absentee ballots. And so anybody can help a voter cure a ballot. And the, the ballots that are rejected are public information. And so I started pooling the ones in House District 89 because I felt like It was probably easier for neighbors, if you know somebody personally, to just go knock on the door and say, hey, your ballot got flagged for this, and here's how to fix it. And so there was a name um, in Edgewood, where I live, and I thought, I'll just drive over to this gentleman's house after, you know, whatever meeting. And I went over there and um, knocked on their door, and, you know, it was an older... 70 year old black gentleman that has lived in our neighborhood for over 40 years. And I said, you know, I'm your state rep. I said, I'm here because your ballot has been flagged. You forgot to sign the outer envelope, but don't worry because I can help you fix it. And in order to fix that, I had to take a picture of his driver's license and have him sign an affidavit and send it to our Decab Board of Elections. And he said, well, I don't have any kind of printer to print or scan, you know, copy of my ballot. I don't have a smartphone, so I can take a picture of it and I don't have an email or internet. So I said, don't worry, I'll take a picture of your your driver's license for you. Just sign this document and I will submit everything on your behalf using my email address. And I thought, this is so wrong. He has to trust a stranger during a pandemic to take a picture of his ID, which is confidential information, and trust that I was going to send it in to our DeKalb Board of Elections instead of do something nefarious with it. And that's the type of disenfranchisement that happens to older people, to people without access to internet, to rural voters, to voters who have disabilities. Um, And those are real life stories. And I, you know, I get really bothered when, I, you know, at the idea of one person's ballot not being counted. And there were tons of people who never received their absentee ballots. Constituents, somebody who flew home, um, I think, from the West Coast in order to vote in person because they never got their, their absentee ballot. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm watching all of these people struggle to cast their ballots you know, it is our fundamental right to vote, and it should be easy and accessible. And instead of fixing the prohibitive barriers, our General Assembly decided to put more barriers down. And so that's what mobilizes me thinking about real life people who are impacted by the policy decisions that we make. And for dinner um, last <laughs> night. Thank you for
0: entertaining all questions, including from our youngest.
1: I was answering non political questions, actually. I was talking to third graders at Tumor, and they're like, Do you have any pets? How old are you? I was like, I will answer all of your questions. <laughs> um, so, okay, we've been trying to do a much better job of cooking, which can be really challenging. So last night we did cook and we made salmon. Mm. No wait, hold on. Last night we made stir fry using vegetables from uh my CSA and then the night before we made salmon and soba noodles and bok choy. Um and then I don't think we're cooking tonight. Oh, so, goodness. Okay, girls,
0: hear. did you hear that? I heard a lot of vegetables and really good meat, okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did have pizza one night. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, oh, actually, I did have Vietnamese food one night. We had um, pho. Oh, and, yummy. And have you had the buon bò which is the spicy
0: noodle soup not yet but i'm gonna make a trip to find some if i can pronounce it
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's like it's a noodle soup in the same way as pub but it has thicker noodles a different beef stock and a different cut of beef and it's spicy
0: yes yes bring on the spice my kids love the spice yeah
1: yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you a link to what I'm talking about. Oh,
0: we're going to drop okay. it in the show notes. Are you kidding? It's not limited to just us. Okay,
1: I will drop it in the show notes. So we have that. And then um the papaya mango salad. Yes. Hello. Yeah. With the shrimp chips. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> this is kidding. Yeah.
0: I'm so glad that they asked that question. By the way, that was my eight-year-old. She asked that
1: question. Uh, what is your favorite Vietnamese food? Oh, uh,
0: so here's the thing: she's a pho lover, but she also enjoys sushi. I'm not sure if that's Vietnamese enough, yeah. but you know, my, my kids are like little connoisseurs; they're a little bit gourmet.
1: Sushi is a very expensive food for a young person to like.
0: <laughs> oh, you know what else they like? The the banh mi's from uh, I've forgotten oh, his name yeah. on Buford Highway. He's so wonderful, Lee.
1: Lee's Bakery. Yes. Yeah. They like
0: those banh mi's, like only Lee's banh mi's. It can't be from anywhere else.
1: Well, we um, learned how to make sushi during the pandemic, like in the beginning when everybody was making, yeah you know, all kinds of bread stuff. <laughs> we learned how to make sushi at home, which we are not doing very often these days. But um, my boyfriend's 10-year-old son loves sushi. And I was like, this is very
0: sophisticated <laughs> for a 10 year old. Well, I don't know. I mean, don't kids around the world eat sushi? Probably. Maybe an American, American, but these are, these are not total Americans. They're like little, I don't know, global citizens, these kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you keep your mindset strong in the face of death threats and detractors and so much, these headwinds that you're facing. You
1: know, you just put your head down and do the work and try to block everything else out. I mean, it's not easy. I was really, really stressed, right? Trying to figure out this I bet. safety plan after the committee meeting. And I knew it was going to happen. And, you know, we do these things ahead of time, like try to remove my address from the website and ask my family members to put their social media private, like, all of those things. Um, and then immediately after, you know, I had some groups that were very helpful in monitoring, um, online activity. And they, you know, like shortly after they were like, look, your address has been released. And, you know, I knew Senator Elena Parent was also having to have, um, APD and DeKalb do drive-bys at her house following the meetings because she got hit pretty hard too. And, and so, um, you know, I was really stressed out, but I had a place to go. And so I left my house and stayed out of it for a couple of weeks. And I have some really, really amazing neighbors. They kept texting me and calling me and saying, is everything okay? We just saw APD drive by your house. And um, my neighbor across the street, John, is a retired electrician. And he's like, I'm going to put floodlights on the outside of your house and we're going to keep you safe. Um, so there were a lot of people watching my back and I, you know, I think one really helpful thing that I have done because this is not the first time that I've had like a wave of people just attacking me is I started, you know, I handed my Twitter account over to somebody else and I said, just go through this and mute everything that is disparaging or harassing are nasty because I don't want to read through it and same on my Facebook. And, you know, you have to put boundaries up to protect yourself emotionally um, because no matter what, what we try to do, like, Oh, that doesn't bother me. It is really hard to read a lot of racist and sexist and xenophobic things and also read, you know, things about people believing that you're a traitor and, you know, wish you your death or whatever. Um, And so I do think it's really important from a mental health perspective to ensure that you shield yourself from all of that information. So, you know, I have a process in place when things start to boil up. I hand my stuff over to someone else and say, just mute everything that I don't need to see and then report things that need to be reported.
0: That's great advice. I really appreciate you sharing it. So how do we help more Asian women engage in political campaigns? Is is it the same thing that women candidates need in general? So I know fundraising can be a doozy.
1: Yeah. Fundraising is always a doozy. <laughs> I think statistically, um, Women have a harder time raising money. Um, You know, we really need to think about stop trying to apply this lens of electability and who's electable, right? Um, From the standard of what we consider electability, I am not electable because I'm Asian and I'm a woman and we have never elected um, any Asian woman for a political statewide office in the state of Georgia, and certainly, I thought about this when I was making the decision to run. And I did have a conversation with Stacey, um, because I think anybody who's running for anything in Georgia should have a conversation with Stacey if you're a Democrat. Oh, you and mean Stacey to-
0: Abrams, my, my hero? Yeah. yeah yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stacey Abrams. Um, I said to Stacey, I said, I am worried. I was like, I'm, you know, I am worried about whether or not people will vote for me because I'm an Asian woman. And she said, well, haven't you always been Asian in Georgia? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, didn't you win your election being Asian in Georgia? Yes, Stacey. And she said, well, I don't want you to think about that anymore. Just stop thinking about it. And she said, sometimes what we need to do is put ourselves forward and let people see before, because sometimes people need to see something before they can imagine it. And I remember her race in 2018 too, where people said the same thing about her And I was behind her 100% from the beginning all the way. As was I. I. I, Mm -hmm. Yes. I made 600 Um,
0: calls for her and I was told that she wasn't electable.
1: Exactly, right? But what she showed us was she transformed the political landscape in Georgia. She was the first candidate that I distinctly remember saying, look, we can win when we build a broad-based coalition. And that includes... Black voters, Asian voters, white progressive voters, Latino voters. I think she was like one of the few people who actually even recognized that Asian people vote and that we are an important part of the electorate. She made me feel seen without centering us because she was also always unequivocal in centering Black voters. And she was also very steadfast in this messaging of we have to turn out Democratic voters. This is not a conversion game. It is making sure our people go to the polls. And when we do that, and we build this broad-based coalition, we can win. And she transformed the way that we think about Georgia politics, but she also transformed the national landscape. I mean, she's a household name. Anywhere I go in the country, people get excited about Stacey Abrams. And and so, you know, I try as much as I can to really um, continue to be inspired by women like her who have stepped up and take taken these risks and taken these hits and, and you know, laid this pathway for us to make it possible for people like me to um, take a step forward and, um, you know, put myself out there because she did the same thing for us.
0: Thank you so much for that. It's time for our action steps for today. B, what steps can we take to help us be courageous and step outside of our comfort zones?
1: You know, I think a lot of times um, we are the ones holding ourselves back, not anybody else, right? We are probably our own worst enemy and our own worst critic. And so I certainly suffered from that, um, especially because I grew up in a household that was pretty restrictive in a lot of ways with our imagination and pretty um, narrow in terms of what my parents felt like we could envision for ourselves. But I always felt like if you stay true to yourself and you really listen to the things that drive you and you listen to what it is that you need and you want, then you are doing the right thing. And... I mentioned this earlier, but giving yourself the freedom to fail is very liberating. We grow up a lot of times wanting to be a perfectionist, and I am, I definitely want to be a perfectionist. Um, But the freedom to fail and the acceptance that failure is what allows us to grow and it carves out different opportunities and pathways for us is really liberating. And, you know, I think that it takes courage to be able to tackle these things, knowing that we have obstacles and challenges in front of us. But it's worth it. Because even if we don't achieve the goal that we set out to achieve in the first place, we gain so many things as we go along through that particular journey. So even with this bid for Secretary of State, people have asked me, do you really want to risk losing your House seat in order to run for Secretary of State? And I tell them I have to be true to what I feel I need to do in this moment, which is step up for our democracy and step up to defend the right to vote. And along this way, I am going to learn so much and meet so many different people across our great state of Georgia. There's so much to be gained by just the run itself. And now as I'm doing it, it feels much different from the apprehension that I had um, before I made that decision. And so I'm choosing to lean into this and I'm choosing to recognize that there are two outcomes, either I win or I don't win. But even with both of those two outcomes comes... Great opportunity and great opportunity to learn. And so I'm embracing all of those things because at the end of the day, I think that when we are true to ourselves, then we will have um, we will have tremendous opportunity even if we fail at what we set out to do.
0: B, thank you so much for your service to our state. And thanks for leading the way for the next generation of public servants, like the little Mohans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> little Mohans. The little Mohan. coming outdoors
0: with me one day. Uh, they'll look cute in, in B for, for Georgia, little t-shirts. <laughs>
1: well, I have these t-shirts that say, we be winning. Aha, uh-huh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I need people to learn how to say my last name and also do the mind association with win with win all these things. (laughs) Oh, I love
0: that. I love that. So what's the website where we can find you?
1: It is www.beforgeorgia.com. And it's spelled out all of it. B-E-E-F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A.com. And then my Twitter handle is at B for Georgia spelled all the way out. Twitter is my favorite social media app, but I am being told by some young people that I need to create a TikTok.
0: Wow, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> (laughs) So we will definitely leave that contact information for B in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Hello Health Today. We are going to take some of our own advice and enjoy a bit of a break. Season 4 will begin in September. In the meantime, please show your support by signing up to receive our newsletter. You can find the sign-up at HelloHealthToday.com. You can also support the show by sharing this episode or providing a review. As always, action steps, content information, and social handles are posted in the show notes. Until next time, remember, today is good. Happy summer, y'all. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Because I am a medical doctor, it's important for me to tell you that nothing I say here in this podcast can substitute for your doctor's advice. My lawyers make me say the same thing this way. The contents of this podcast are neither intended nor implied to be relied on for medical diagnosis, care, or treatment concerning any individual. Under no circumstances does this podcast create a physician-patient relationship nor does it constitute engagement in the practice of medicine or the provision of any healthcare service to an individual patient. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnosis and treatment. Consult a healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or to obtain guidance about any medical conditions. The producers of this podcast expressly disclaimed responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of reliance on the information contained in this podcast.